Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead? Here, in this portion of Isaiah, we have a prophecy of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is very significant for us to note that the prophecy of Christ's coming is made in the context of national judgment and national disaster. And so we're going to look at the situation in Israel when this prophecy of Christ's coming was made. It was a situation of national calamity. And then, of course, we can apply this to our own nation. We are a, a nation in deep rebellion against God. And therefore, the coming of Christ into the world must be what we should proclaim in this situation of national calamity. Now, in Isaiah's day, severe oppression is coming upon the land. And in the midst of this affliction, the righteous must never be tempted to seek out false prophets, fortune tellers, and necromancers. That is, those who consult the spirits of the dead. And this is what verse 19 is speaking of. Uh, there are those in the nation who are turning to occultic practices instead of turning to the Lord. We read of them that have familiar spirits. That refers to mediums. And unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Uh, the word peep refers to a bird-like sound such as chirping. The mediums would chirp and mutter as they engaged in their evil occultic practices. So this is a warning against witchcraft and the occult, against trying to discern the future by forbidden means. And of course the devil is just as active in these areas uh, today uh, and the whole common practice uh, in contemporary western society of uh, drug taking uh, is very much uh, an exposure to witchcraft and evil spirits now of course all the trendy people who take drugs would deny that uh, but in the New Testament the Greek word for witchcraft uh, is pharmakia, uh, from which we get our English word um, pharmacy. And as people take drugs, uh, they expose themselves 
to evil spirits. Now, it is in this kind of rebellion against God that the announcement of the coming of Christ is made. And also here there is a condemnation in this verse 19 of the practice uh, of trying to discern the future by forbidden means. Uh, In modern Britain uh, you can pick up a newspaper or a magazine uh, and you will see a horoscope. Um, Well here such practices are forbidden. Should not a people seek unto their God? Uh, And the practice is forbidden also of calling up the spirits of the dead. And of course the idols whom many were worshipping are dead. They're not real gods. They're just lumps of stone and wood. And so the fact that we have to have this warning issued in verse 19 shows... um, the desperate station, uh, status that the nation was now in, spiritually. So I, Isaiah asked this question, uh, on behalf of the living, should they seek to the dead? How foolish to go to dead men to try and help the living. Far better to go to the living God. And so we read in verse 20, To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. God has already spoken through his true prophets and through his written word. So why go to these mediums? Why go to these astrologers? Why go to these necromancers? God has spoken in his word. The people have all the revelation they need. Let them not resort to false prophets and to soothsayers who have a message which comes straight from the devil. Such are devoid of all light. But Isaiah is ministering to a society which is abandoning the truth of God's word. And so judgment is coming upon the land. And the people are going to suffer. And so we read in verse 21. And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. What a desperate state Israel is going to fall into because of foreign invaders. Those who turn to idols and mediums to help them, instead of to the Lord, will find themselves wandering through the land in a condition uh, described here in, in verse 21 as hardly bestead and hungry. Hardly bestead and hungry. Now, the phrase hardly bestead means... Hard pressed, beset on all sides with grievous difficulties. And Isaiah is foretelling here that the Israelites are going to experience great affliction by means of Assyrian incursions 
into their territory. Assyria attacked Israel in 733 BC. And they conquered the northern region of the land, which we know as Galilee, which comprised the tribal territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, And it is good, as we look at this passage, if we focus upon those two particular territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, because this is of deep significance. Many of the inhabitants of that region were taken back to Assyria as captives and Galilee became an Assyrian province. Eleven years later, in 722 BC, the whole of the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to Assyria, with again many prisoners being taken out of the country. This would be a final and total disaster for the nation from which it would never recover. Ten of the twelve tribes would cease any longer to have a homeland with only Judah and Benjamin remaining in the south. Now, the reason that God is permitting this tragedy to occur is that the northern kingdom has abandoned its loyalty to the God-ordained royal house of David and has also turned to false worship. No longer going to the temple at Jerusalem in the south but erecting idols instead and also joining in the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so at the hands of the Assyrians we are told in this verse 21 that the people will be hardly bestead, brought to great extremity, including hunger, as the invader wreaks havoc in their midst. Now remember, this is the environment in which the prophecy of the coming of Christ is made. And we see in verse 21 here, the people will fret themselves and they will look upward in order to curse the God whom they have rejected. And this is exactly what is happening today. When we are preaching in the open air, we find people coming by and cursing God. Uh, They shout out, it's all a myth what you are saying. Uh, Nothing is true. Why why should we follow what your book says? And what people are effectively doing is shaking a fist at their maker. Um, Just as the Israelites once did. Uh, And of course, uh, what people frequently do is, although they don't believe in God, or although they think God has no control over the earth, when things go wrong, and when there is much suffering in the world, what do they do? They blame God. With an appalling piece of inconsistency. And so, we see similarities, great similarities, between the society of Isaiah's day and our own day. Verse 22, And they shall look unto the earth, and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, 
and they shall be driven to darkness. The people in their plight will look around for some kind of earthly help. Just as our own nation has done. In the post-war period, we've abandoned the Christian faith. Uh, We've cast off our Christian inheritance. And what have we done? We've, we've, We've looked to other nations for security and prosperity. Uh, But Israel finds out here there will be no allies who can help them. Their idols will fail them. And so the prospect for the nation could not be bleaker. Behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Assyria, in Isaiah's time, is now actually ravaging the country. The people are in a condition of much distress. Now God has only brought all this distress upon the nation because all the gentler means of drawing them to himself have failed. You see, if a people ignores the gentler methods, such as listening to a preacher in the high street, if they keep on rejecting those gentler methods... God will begin to use harsher methods to humble a rebellious people. All the prophets whom the Lord has sent to Israel have been ignored and abused. Now for a long time Israel has been receiving lesser afflictions at God's hand. Warnings to the people to repent. The northern part of the land in particular, the regions known as Zebulun and Naphtali, again note that, they have been subjected to various military incursions. Firstly from Syria and now from the Assyrians. They are separate different groups. And so the people are now in the darkness of abject despair. The nation is soon to fall. And it is in that context that we move into chapter 9 with these wonderful prophetic words. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now, by the way of the sea there, in chapter 9, verse 1, refers to the region around the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. This region is at first lightly afflicted, by various enemy attacks, but then is afterwards more grievously afflicted, as there is uh, a total capitulation to the enemy. Now, a hundred years earlier, before Isaiah's time, the nation had suffered badly by attacks from the Syrians. Uh, We read of this in 2 Kings 10 and verse 31 and following. 
Now, in Isaiah's time, uh, just a while before he was writing, there was a major Assyrian attack. And this is recorded for us in 2 Kings 15. So, we need to remember that when we read 2 Kings 15, this is the background to a prophecy of the coming of Christ. 2 Kings 15 verse 29 In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tilglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ijon and Abel-Bethmeachah and Janoah and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Gilalee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. So there we see that the northern part of Israel, this region that is known as Galilee, experiences great physical destruction, much hunger and systematic depopulation. It is a foretaste of the complete demise of the northern kingdom in a few years' time. So this is why Isaiah is speaking here of the gloom, the vexation and the darkness of this region. And it's all a result of the nation's departure from God. We read in this first verse of chapter 9, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. The dimness and the gloom will not remain over Galilee forever. It will not always be as this time when God is vexing the nation to chastise it. The current and immediately future vexation will not always prevail in Isaiah's time. The the situation in this part of Israel, and indeed the whole of the nation, is dreadful. Utter darkness. The people are in despair. But there is coming a time when this will change. When the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali will be honoured above any other place upon the earth. And so we read in verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow, the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Something wonderful is going to happen in this particular part of Israel. Even though it will be completely overrun by the Assyrians and its people taken into captivity, The gloom and darkness are going to be dispelled by a light which is divine in origin. It is so certain that this will happen that Isaiah, here in verse 2, even puts the narrative in the past tense. This, This is often a practice of the prophets when they are foretelling the future because it is already fixed in God's purposes they put it in the past tense and so we read the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined Isaiah is actually looking forward here 
some 700 years to New Testament times. Verse 3 Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. God is going to multiply the nation. He's going to cause it to increase in numbers. And then we have the phrase and not increase the joy. And note that one has said that in the form of a question. Thou hast not increased the joy. It is a rhetorical question. Having multiplied the nation, hast thou not also increased their joy? The ob- obvious answer being, yes, of course, thou hast increased their joy. So we have a formal answer to that question in the rest of the verse. The words yes or indeed being implied. Yes, indeed, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So in the midst of all the disasters of Isaiah's day, there is a prophecy here of the people's numbers increasing and of the people's joy increasing. And so in the midst of all the gloom of Isaiah's day, we have this prophecy of great joy. Its joy will be as the joy over an abundant harvest. The people will rejoice as do victors over their enemies. Verse 4, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Just as in the time of Gideon, when a mere 300 Israelite soldiers defeated the mighty Midianite army using just torches and trumpets, not weapons. So there is coming a mighty deliverance of Israel which will not be wrought by military means. Israel's greatest oppression is due to all its sin and rebellion against God. There is one coming, however, who will rescue the nation from this oppression. The present enemy, the Assyrians, symbolise Israel's spiritual enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil. These enemies will be broken. Verse 5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Now here the horror of the battlefield is described. At any battle there is always great shouting and noise and the groanings of the injured. Israel, however, will be victorious without such confused noise because the enemy will be consumed by fire without any physical fighting taking place. And so we read at the end of verse 5 here that the victory shall be 
with burning and fuel for fire. Israel's enemies will be consumed by fire, which is the direct agency of God, rather than by the vicious clamour of hand-to-hand combat. In other words, there is going to be a victory over the spiritual enemies. This victory will take place under a future king in the line of David. Isaiah is foretelling here that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring about this victory. You see, as we read verse 6 here, with which we are familiar, we cannot really understand it unless we have first studied the previous verses. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A king is coming, who will be Israel's greatest king. He will rescue the nation from its enemies. He will establish a mighty kingdom. But it is a spiritual kingdom which is in view. This kingdom will be overseen by a descendant of David who will take to himself some very special titles. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are titles which no mere man could assume. For they ascribe deity to this coming king. He is called wonderful. The Hebrew word means that which is miraculous. Beyond all human comprehension. This coming king will be none other than almighty God. Appearing upon the earth as a man. He will be called Counselor. He will need no cabinet of advisors and experts to help him govern. For he will be the embodiment of the counsel and wisdom of God in his own person. He will be called nothing less than the mighty God. The Hebrew word translated God here is never applied anywhere in the Old Testament to one who was just a powerful man. Now this king will be fully God. The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This coming king will be called the everlasting Father. Because he will be of one essence with the Father. He will himself be the creator of the world. He is the one who declared, I and my Father are one. And he will be called the Prince of Peace. Now the word peace does not simply mean the absence of war. The Hebrew word conveys the sense of security, prosperity, well-being. It speaks of the condition a man is in when he receives God's salvation. 
peace speaks of being reconciled to God. God and sinners reconciled. And the great tragedy in our land today is that in churches up and down the land, they will be told that the coming of Jesus Christ is about peace between nations. No, it is not. It is about peace between God and man. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He comes to forgive sins, to save men's souls. He alone can administer peace to sinful men, removing from them the condemnation under which they otherwise lie. Those who turn from sin and trust in Christ receive his peace. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not to establish the United Nations. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We read of him in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It will be no ordinary descendant of David who will save Israel. This coming king will reign forevermore. His throne will be invincible. So Isaiah here, in the midst of national calamity, is foretelling the birth of Christ. There is coming a king who will cast away all the horrible darkness that is currently over the region of Galilee. When the Lord Jesus Christ appears, the words of verse 2 will be gloriously fulfilled. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. When the Lord begins his preaching ministry, where did he preach? This is highly significant. He preached in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, otherwise known as Galilee. There he spent most of his time. He brought light to the darkness of those regions. And so uh, we read in the New Testament in Matthew 4 and verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So there in Matthew 4, our Lord quotes this passage here in Isaiah 9. 
and he applies it to his own ministry. So the birth of Christ is about the coming of light to our dark and needy world, made wretched by sin and unbelief. The birth of Christ is about the salvation of sinners, about the rescuing of men who at present are being afflicted by all that that ancient empire of Assyria represented, namely this Christ-rejecting world in which we live, with all its ludicrous, trendy, politically correct, anti-Christian nonsense. The birth of Christ is about salvation from our spiritual enemies. He is the final king in the line of David. He reigns now and will reign forevermore. He is the prince of peace. But those only will enjoy his peace who first turn from sin and trust in him. Galilee in Isaiah's day aptly depicts the spiritual darkness of this whole world and especially our own land in our day but in the midst of the darkness we have this message unto us a child is born a great light has come upon man's spiritual darkness Jesus Christ is the light of the world the only way to respond to his coming to this earth is to flee to him for salvation repenting of all sin and to do so without any delay Amen